This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Hi, welcome to Practical Spirituality here at Asha Torah, the old city of Jerusalem, overlooking the Temple Mount. Shalom, everyone. Um, today's subject, I'm with you guys, by the way, don't, this is just there. I mean, once in a while I get a comment saying, like, you're crazy. So, at which point I retract everything I said previously. Just kidding. You know, I realize I'm not wearing my glasses. Like, this room's foggy. I can't remember if I made a bracha before I walked in or after I walked in here. I was outside the room. No, shackles don't travel so much. I was in Baron. Okay. Did anyone hear me make a bracha? No one heard me make a bracha, right? Oh, then, okay, that's enough witnesses. Yeah. No bracha. Yes, ma'am. I didn't. I was not thinking that. Or asking that. Oh. If you're asking about making brachas on things without it in your hand, um, which is definitely not going to be our topic today, but it's, it is, uh, that wouldn't be a good idea. It was, I was asking for a whole separate reason. Oh. Some people say, like, what, were you going to make a bracha like that every time? I mean, is that for the audience? Like, what kind of, is that how you make brachas? You know, what if I did that all the time? Do you? I do. And the answer is, we should make it all the time like that. I mean, what else you can do with your life? You were only created to serve God. I mean, why do you think we have a blessing after the bathroom? You know why we have a blessing after the bathroom? It's so we check in throughout the day with more prayer, more prayer, more prayer. It's not just a bracha to like, so I can have my water. It's, it, it's like in the way of the water. No, it's another prayer that reconnects and reconnects and reconnects. And it's even brought down that this, the morning prayers we say, shachris, is like a big water table that we set up for the day. And then every bracha we say after that, we tap into it. Meaning, that, why is shachris so long? Why is it so extensive? Why is it like section after section, you know, Korbonos, Pesukah de Zimra, Kriyashma, Shemone Esra, and then on the way back down, you know, you got to go back down, another route. Um, why do we have this whole thing? And the answer is, we're setting up our day as a spiritual day. Then, all the other things you say, you just tap in. Meaning, meaning, if you understood what you have to do in order to get to Shemone Esra in the morning, like where you have to climb to, so then you would ask the question, well, how can Mincha, we just say Asher and jump in? And the answer is that you're already in. You're in since Shachris. And this is why I pitied the foo who only prays, you know, he like puts on his tefillin right before uh, Shkia, you know, and uh, maybe pulls off a mincha. Because he never created the spiritual day. Like the, the Shachris creates the spiritual day you're going to have. And so Shachris is so important comparatively. And of course it has a bare bone skeleton for those who have no patience. You know, you can just say Ashrei, you know, Boshimar Ashrei Yishtabach, and then kind of move through. But, uh, but yeah, it kind of sets it up. So every time you go to the bathroom and you make a blessing, or every time you make a blessing on food, those blessings are all coming off the morning's shachris. Those are all tap. That's like tapping a well that you created early in the morning. Now, um, 
I got an interesting thing I just thought of. Uh, today's question came from our, our friend Ahuva, who we're not filming. Um, but uh, Ahuva had a, had a question that was, uh, why do we call God he? And, and then I started thinking, well, maybe I should create a provocative title. But then I started thinking that Torani Time might not carry the class if it's too provocative a title. It'll be like a red flag. And of course, they have to be careful because they have a, you know, a very observant viewership. And then I thought about the fact that Torani Time just carries my stuff. You know, I'm sure... No, I mean, they carry everyone's stuff. As long as you're Torah observant, they're going to carry your stuff. Your stuff. And, they, and the truth is, the more provocative, the better for Torney Time. Why? Because the, the actual founders of Torney Time um, are one of the few institutions left on earth with their finger on the pulse of an um, unraveling Jewish world. A lot of people don't want to admit that there's this great unraveling going on, but... It's those people are generally the ones with, te- with problem teenagers. Um, meaning, if you're going to be willing to admit the Jewish world's unraveling, so then you're more likely to have teenagers who are into things. Because you'll find one thing that every teenager you meet who's what's called a, in English, a, in Hebrew it's called a no-share, like a fallen fruit from the tree of life. And uh, in America they have a funnier name for it. It's called tuna bagel. And the... Um, Anyway, but one thing they all have in common is no communication with their parents of where they're at. Like, meaning they're un these are un gps kids because the parents don't want to even know. Like, the parents are not interested in knowing. We have set our sights on the Tower of Light called God and Torah, and, you know, don't tell me anything else. Don't disappoint me. Don't upset me. Don't, don't make me... Um, don't make it uncomfortable, and you just toe the line, kid. So what happens is, that might be great for one kid, but when you have eight, nine, ten kids, whoa, you know, especially when you're a direct descendant genetically from Abraham, who's the biggest troublemaker in the history of the world, you know, I mean, burning his father's idol shop, you know, like, like we're, we, we have it in our genes, this Avraham thing going on. So we like to question you know, question systems. We like, you know, systems, humans don't fit in systems. And when system gets strong, humans generally get out. Well, not the simpler ones, but certainly the, the ones who are of higher IQ or the ones who are of higher um, um, self-determination or, you know, the ones that present all those wonderful values that we all really want. <laughs> those ones get out, which means we're actually breeding out our special people that the special people are feeling like, like Gentiles in the eyes of the system. And, the, uh, and who stays are the much more normal people, which is wonderful. We certainly need normal people. We need everyone. But we certainly don't want to breed out leaders because leaders are, have a couple things in common. One of the things leaders have in common is obviously intelligence. Another thing leaders have in common is a natural propensity to question the, the system. Why? Because, because the systems don't move. Systems are static. But the world is not static. The world is dynamic. And it's constantly growing and it's constantly unfolding. And the, the, the world is quite dynamic. And, and uh, if you have a static system in a dynamic world, well, you're going to have a problem. And this is why you'll look at the world of politics, that it's always been upheavals and revolution throughout all of world history. That's the way every country's dealing with things, and whether it's the Middle East, whether it's Africa, and, and watch out if it's going to happen in the U.S., because things are getting quite polarized there. And, and, but that is the way things work. And, and that is that system versus 
um, versus uh, dynamic. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, order or rigid static versus dynamic. And the human exists, experience is quite dynamic and it works in movements and, and it doesn't generally fit into systems very long. And all of this is really cool because there's a play called Order and Chaos. There's something called order and there's something called chaos. Now, we've given chaos a bad rap, yet you'll notice in your own life you're addicted to chaos. Every one of us is addicted to chaos. We're all addicted to chaos. Um, for example, uh, I don't know who I could pick on here. Uh, anyone married here? You married? Oh, we've got a married person. Chaos. Chaos. You're addicted to chaos. You know? and, uh, and getting married is totally chaotic. It's totally chaotic, and now, and now you're, and next thing you know, kids start coming, and the chaos is getting really crazy, and of course, if you're in the Jewish world, you're really addicted to chaos, because when I say the Jewish world, I meant the observant world, sorry, when you're in the observant Jewish world, now you're really addicted to chaos, because you're not going for birth control so much, and so your house has become something that National Geographic would appreciate, and, and, and the father, who's supposed to somehow pay for all this, even though, of course, we've created some kind of weird thing in the system that every man's supposed to pretend he never wants to work a day in his life, and every woman's supposed to pretend that what she wants is a man who never works a day in his life, but rather she'll support him, which is, you know, you might as well buy the guy's skirt. You know, no offense, but you've just emasculated your man, and how are you ever going to respect that guy? You know, so the answer is, is that it's all a bluff. And in fact, every woman wants to be cared for by her male. And that's how things have always been throughout the history of the world. And in fact, the Chazanish, who created the whole Kolol system, said that this is for a maximum of two generations. He said it himself. The man who created this system said it's for two generations. It's an answer to the extreme secularization that was going on amongst Israel at the time. The, you know, the wild, fervent nationalism of secular Israel, the state. And so way back when, at the foundation of the state, he said, we're going to create a movement that's just going to protect Torah while the state's running around with their, you know, their flags. We're going to create a movement that will protect Torah and we're going to actually keep men in learning. So he said that would probably last two generations. But I think it's gotten a little bit comfortable. And, uh, and it's been pretty cool for most people, unless, of course, you don't fit in the system. Which is what percentage, you guys tell me, what percentage of men are not built to be sitting indoors with a book in front of their face for, uh, uh, what is it, nine to one, and then let's go lenient here, nine to one, and then so that's four hours, and then you got three to seven, that's eight hours, and then, uh, I mean, we're kind of expected to learn at night after Shona Rishona, but I learned, I mean, I learned more than all of this. I, I learned eight years straight, uh, it's a nice spot over here, Ben. I learned eight years straight for, uh, uh, I don't remember how many hours, I don't know, 12 hours a day, I suppose, for eight years straight. And uh, it was 10 to 12 hours a day. So, so the, which is why I'm up here. Just kidding. Um, so, <laughs> I'm just messing around. So the, the um, I think I'm still jet lagged from yesterday. You know, the, uh, I, was, I was kind of a loose cannon yesterday. Anyway, yeah, yeah, check out yesterday's class. Oh, no, no. I, I tightened up my ship by the second half, which is the part. We, repart, we recorded the second part. first part was just a crazy rant. Now, the, um, anyway, the, how many people, let's ask Ben since he just arrived. How many people are, are built to stare at a book 30 inches from their nose for, let's say, eight hours a day for years, year after year after year? How many people, how many people, let's say, of the male population are built for that? As opposed to people who actually need to 
uh, would rather work with their hands or work creatively or do other things, meaning they're going to just be involved fully intellectually. Just staring at a book all day. Intellectual, breaks. intellectual. Breaks, of course, breaks. Eight hours, you got 17 waking hours. Is there a discussion going on or just, just reading a book? Oh, good question. It's just intellectual. It could be discussion, it could be questions answered, it could be all kinds of stuff. Oh, okay. I mean, how long can you sit in this class? I mean, if we're having an interesting debate, probably all day. You could go all day with an interesting debate? Sign them up. Very nice. So it turns out that it's about, uh, one, um, of men, I think what they figured out was, was that 45, no, 40%, I forget what the number was, what's <laughs> 85, what's half of 85%? That's the part I know. What? 42.5. The 42.5 men are very tactile and physical and instinctual, and they like to work with their hands and build things and make businesses and, like, do all that stuff. Then there's another 45% of men, or 42.5% of men, that, um, that like to be involved in, in um, more interpersonally, which means uh, every type of service thing, everything in sales, everything in... Uh, Everything in the, the, any world of uh, education and all that stuff. Um, and then the, there's a 15% who are just like, they're like talking heads. They're like heads. They're intellectuals. And they're, they're just heads. About 15% of the population are like that. And that's why you'll notice that some of your teachers, who are the best teachers you ever had, don't consider themselves great Torah scholars. Why? Because you need interpersonal skills. It's the interpersonal people who are going to be the best teachers. They may not have the best Torah. It's an open miracle. I learned that many years because I was, it was the most unnatural thing I've ever done in my life was sitting eight years straight studying Torah. It was extremely unnatural and it was a stretch. I stretched for eight years and blessed my wife for, for like putting me through all that because she, uh, she, she gets a lot of reward for backing me for those years. And, uh, but in the end, I'm really more of an interpersonal type person. So. How did I do the, all those years? I think, I think because, I was, because I wasn't raised observant, I think a lot of those years were just trying to catch up with eight-year-olds. You know, you're missing so much. When you, if you weren't raised observant, you're just missing a lot. So a lot of those years were just catch-up. And then once I you'd, could say I caught up, then I got to go towards proficiency. So, so it just takes time. If you really want to not be an amha'aretz, as it's called, uh, the term amha'aretz means an ignoramus. Um, if you don't want to be an ignoramus as a balchuva, you've got to pay your dues. I was just paying my dues. Maybe the extra last two years were just, when it became clear I'd be a rabbi, was just studying to be a rabbi, meaning to get ordained as a rabbi. Maybe the last two years, but probably six years would have been appropriate. And the last two were as a career choice. You understand that? Like the last two years was like, the writing was on the wall. I'm going to be reaching out as a rabbi. And so I studied another two years. Anyway, but we got a system set up that marginalizes some 85% of, of the men. And that's, that's a major issue. The major issue. And, and the reason why I'm bringing it up is that rabbis like me have to pick up the pieces. We're busy picking up the pieces. And there's a lot of pieces, a lot of pieces. And a lot of people are too young to know this, but, uh, but there's a large population of, of men who are um, raised in the observant community who are, um, 
let's say between the ages of um, 18 and 23, who are, you know, very involved in Torah study, who are, um, when you speak to them, there's, there's a sense that they're not in, their, in the zone. They're not really in the zone. I'm being really nice and careful with my words because these are people coming to talk to me that it's much worse than not being in the zone. But, uh, what? <laughs> They're just like, whatever. I, I can't even explain it. Not in the zone? Yeah. Uninspired, let's say. Okay. They're uninspired. And they have no choice, really, then, to keep doing what they're doing, because otherwise they're well, going to wind up single. What's that? Some of these guys are are, uh, are interested and they're right on the money. They're in the zone. Some guys are in the zone. Also, uh, uh, educators are an important part of this because with great educators, you can keep someone in the zone much longer. So, like, for example, where you're studying, is that guy can put someone in the zone who would never have been in the zone, you know? Um, this uh, yeshiva is called uh, Barry Klein. It's called Barry Klein's Chabura. And... It doesn't matter where you come. You can come in there with cowboy boots and a bolo tie. And, like, you know, you have to have had some background in learning or you're going to be completely lost. I mean, you, have to, you probably should be raised observant or at least have paid your dues for a while learning. But it could be, like, you're not interested in learning and he's going to somehow get you in learning, you know. It's just, and you know why, Ben? is because he gets your head in the debate. He gets you into the debate of the Talmud. He puts you in the page, you know. You're not, page isn't there. Remember how I said you're, like, 30 inches from a page, you're not, in his word, world, you're not 30 inches from the page. You're, you're in there. And when you're in there, it's the whole thing opens up, you know. So, okay. Um, let's get busy here. Today's question is, uh, is ultimately, why is God called he? And the answer is very simple. And it has to do with the world of mysticism. The entire mystical tradition of our planet, whether you're talking about Africa or Native Americans or Indians in India, or you're talking about um, South American Amazon, wherever you go, where you meet the natives, meaning when you, what I'm, why am I talking about natives? I'm talking about people with a mystical tradition. When you meet anyone of mystical tradition, everything gets broken down into male and female, everything. And interestingly, our planet is broken down into male and female. Everything in physicality is male and female. Everyone in this room is male or female. I mean, I know today people feel that's a choice, male or female. And, of course, that creates all kinds of controversy. Controversy, And, and it's, you know, it's certainly been a lot of fun the last few years of debates of this whole subject of male and female amongst humans. But that's a uniquely human thing to go so far as to say that you're going to choose your gender you know, when uh, every doctor on earth is going to, you know, it's going to be a little hard to fool him, you know, but the, uh, certainly, certainly like MRIs are going to come out, you know, you know, one way or the other without your, it doesn't care what you think, you know, MRIs don't care whether you're, whether you think you're a male or a female, you know, so. What's Ben Shapiro say?
I heard Jordan Peterson say something that was on the lines of it, but uh, maybe a little different, maybe not the right subject. Is this blocking my face for you? Yeah. Oh, I could fix that. Just need to lower it a bit. One sec. That's good. So, sorry about that. Um, Jordan Peterson, I think he said, um, I think he said identity is a negotiation. You ever heard that? Identity is negotiation, meaning you don't get to choose your identity and force everyone on your identity. identity. Like, you can't suddenly say you're respectable. That's up to us. Act respectably, and we will respect you. But, like, to demand that. Now, that might be apples and oranges, but he was basically saying an identity is a negotiation. And, and you have to live a certain way in your life, and that's a negotiation. So if someone wants, I guess what he was saying was if someone wants to choose the opposite gender for themselves and say, you know, a guy wants to say he's a woman or a woman wants to say she's a man. So you don't, you can't just put that on everybody. You can change and live that way. And if everyone goes for it, so you've negotiated well, that was a good negotiation. And uh, of course, again, you're still stuck with the doctors and the MRI, but the, uh, meaning that's going to always know your gender. But at least you negotiated it properly, meaning identity is a negotiation, whereas if you're a, um, just running around making everyone say they have to respect something, that's not a negotiation. That's, that's really a, a level of tyranny, I think he was saying. I, don't know, I saw this a while ago. I think it's a level of tyranny forcing everyone into your identity. You know, whatever. Back to us. So God does not have genitalia. Okay, God is not male nor female. God is an infinite being. Okay, if he had genitalia, <laughs> God, God, <laughs> yeah, he, he doesn't have genitalia, and if he did, it would be really scary. Okay, <laughs> just ask Mary, and the 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 the. We're talking about an infinite being. So what is this about male and female? And the answer is, is that the masculine gender in, in our creation, again, we're not talking about God, masculine gender in our creation is, a, is in a causal relationship to whatever else is going on. It's, in a, it's a causer, and feminine is a receiver. Male cause, female receive. Male cause, female receive. It's always that way. Is your husband here by any chance? Is your husband here? Just making sure couples get to sit together. It's a nice spot here if you want. So, masculine cause, female receive. That's just the way things go. Okay? Cause and receive. And every single thing in all of creation is cause and receive. The sun is a cause. It's received by the ozone, thank God. And it's received by us, which is the ozone and us are going to be the feminine. Okay? The water in my cup is cause. And it just goes and goes and goes and flows and flows. And where it flows, it goes. And the, uh, but the cup is for sure feminine because it's now containing it. It's received the water. And thank God, we got the, we got the cause and the receive going on. But it's literally everywhere. The electricity coming through this wire is cause. And my phone receiving it is receive. The glass is cause. 
and the frame of the glass windows is received. How yeah. we receive us from What's that? How we receive Yeah, well, that's where we're going to go with it in a minute. But the, but every single thing in this world is masculine and feminine. Everything is either cause or receive. Not only that, but the entire plant kingdom is male and female. And you want to know something, there's a date palm. I don't know if it's every palm, I don't think so, but I know there's a date palm that is, uh, that we call the tamar, that is both male and female. It actually has within it the male and female gender. I think it's maybe of the only vegetations in the world that's both male and female, which is really interesting. Uh, we'll bring that up a little later, why that's so interesting. Most flowers like that pollen, and they also receive pollen from other flowers? Well, there's balance there. There's and there's both male and female, and it takes the bees to do the male into that flower, which is apparently the female. Oh, does it? Uh-huh. It could be they have that aspect to them. Um, I hate to admit, but... Uh, you'd have to teach us this, Ben. Ben, you know some botany? Not really. In the last. I know about pollination. Tell us about that. I mean... Oh. <laughs> I mean, we'd have to, we'd have to know more. Like, do both male and female, do both male and female flower? Wait, do males flower? Do male plants flower? They do. Really? Yeah, it's like one flower. But the, well, how is the plant itself male or female? It's not because the plant has both parts. Mm, no, there's male and females. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It depends on some plants. Well, maybe some plants have that, but I know. What but most flowers have a male and female part. We're not discussing the parts. We're discussing whether the plant itself is male or female. Do you know more about that? We're just looking for help here. It, I, think, I think it depends on the plant. Some plants have the male and female parts together, and so, but they still need uh, pollinator in order to transfer it. Because I know some can't pollinate themselves, even though they have both male and female parts. Like the flower. I think it's complicated. It depends on the plant. Okay, amazing. Okay, great. Um, it turns out that we managed to gather about 30 people together with none with any real information about male and female plants, except, we, except I had brought up this one that was for sure male and female, which was the tamar tree. And, what? Well, yeah, but I'm just saying I don't think it's the only one. I know, shame, shame. Uh, anyone who's like likes Googling in the middle of classes, feel free to Google uh, male and female plants. You know, uh, gender and plants. I don't know what to write exactly there. Male, female plants. Anyway, so everything, <laughs> everything is male and female. And I've already pointed out several things in the room. And I talked about the sun. And I talked about electricity is, is male. So what it means, male and female in, in mysticism, is causer and receiver. Causer and receiver. But yeah, I, both. What's that? Mm, that's not they helpful. Have a male portion and a female yeah, the male portion. Well, that, yeah, that's then it's so definitely both. The male both. portion is the pollen-loaded stamen, while the egg-holding thistle is the female part. You're on the flower, though. Yeah, most, most. That wasn't our question. Uh, plants, vegetation or plants, trees. It says, not flowers. It says most plants sprout bisexual flowers, which have both male and female parts. It's too big. I really am not interested in flowers at all. I don't know how many times I can t- say this. You know what? Forget it. We'll Google it later. Okay? We'll check it out later. I'm just asking about the plants. Nothing to do with flowers. Nothing. Flowers Zero. Are plants. What? Flowers are plants. I'm talking about the world of plants. 
trees, yeah, you know. Trees flowers. It's too big, though. That's wonderful. I just want to know about the so trees, not about the flowers. This is ridiculous. We don't have to discuss this. I understand that flowers have different parts. I want to know about just the plants. But forget it, forget it. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Thank you very much. So the reason why God is called in the masculine is because the, he's the causer. And again, I'm using the he. He's the causer and the creation itself is the receiver. Now that being the case, that means that we're going to refer to God as male all the time. And that's why Torah refers to God as male. But not only does Torah refer to God as male and, and Judaism refers to God as male, but every mystical tradition on the planet considers the creator as a male creator. Now, there might be some unfound jungle community that considers God female, but that is generally not the case. The, uh, what they do have is the creator of the whole thing is masculine because it's causing creation into existence, and the creation itself, receiving it, is called the female. What about the nurture aspect of God? Nurture aspect of God? Yeah, taking care of us. I'm only discussing right now why we refer to God as male, but God is acting in every single way. For example, you're a female, and God is acting through you right now. So now God's like female in the fact that you're here. You get that? So he's, he, God's got a great repertoire of male and female. I'm only referring to why we refer to God as male, because us down here are for sure receivers. And God is for sure causing. But yeah. So the reason is because the man, the man is called the man as he causes a, you know, without getting graphic here, insemination. Okay, and that's that's the masculine causer or asserter, and then uh, and then the female receives that, and and then is a vessel just like my cup. You know, my cup does a great job of pouring too. You know, it creates as well, even though it's, you know, but that's also, you could say that giving birth is masculine. The actual birthing process is masculine, but she's, she's receiving the seed and that's, that's causing the, that's the cup that for nine months causes, but for sure the birth itself is masculine. <laughs> That's interesting. He said a nice thing in English is that he is within she. The word she has he in it. <laughs> and she is he in Hebrew. So. <laughs> and who is he? And he is she. And 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 who are who is me? Who is me? <laughs> me is who? <laughs> Anyway, so back to us. So if God is called in the masculine, what does that put us in? Puts us all in the feminine, including the men in the room. So all the men right now are the feminine vis-a-vis God. And for that reason, it's, we get in a really interesting water with, back to our generation where like suddenly genders become like the hot issue. And you know, I, I like to call it the gender crisis. Like we're living through the gender crisis. So... So, 
it brings up some interesting stuff um, regarding us all being the female, because I think most people would put observant Jews more on the right than on the left of the political spectrum. Most Jews would be put more on the right. So you would, it would be ironic to find out that, like, for example, me or, or uh, Menachem or Ben over there or Ezra, that, that, that we see ours, because we wear these, that we see ourselves as the female. You understand? Like, this is a male commandment. Like, men wear tzitzis. Okay, the camera's too high. Men wear tzitzis, and, fe- and females do not. Men wear kippahs, females do not. And, and since I wear this, I'm really female. Vis-a-vis God. Vis-a-vis you guys, I'm male. Vis-a-vis God, I'm female. And I'm showing that with this. Now tell me, what about wearing this shows me as female? And again, what do I mean by female? As receiver. What about this shows me as female? What about these show me as female? What's that? Okay, but if I didn't wear a kippah, I'm still receiving as light. Everyone out there is receiving as light. No, not really. Why? Okay, I'm putting God. It's like a reminder that there's something over me. I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a. There's, there's like. There's being dominating, and then there's subjugating. I am subjugating myself under God. I'd like to go do whatever I want. I'm, a, I'm also part animal. Every human being is part animal. So I'm part animal, part soul. My body would like to do whatever it wants, but I wear sitsis to remind me that I'm actually the receiver of a relationship with God. And, don't, and you're not an animal. You're a soul. you got a body. Just like a dog or a cat or a monkey or a lion. You got a body, but you also have a soul. And these sitsis remind you that you have a soul in your relationship with God. Now, why don't women have to wear sitsis? And why don't women have to wear tefillin? Why don't women have to wear kippah? Why don't women have to go to pray with a group of men and stuff like that? Why don't they have to do that? It's because their actual buildup is feminine. Meaning they're born feminine. So they're born already receiving. And why men have to wear all this stuff and do all this stuff is because you could say we're handicapped in as much as recognizing ourselves as receivers. Because it's more masculine to want to make your mark on the world. You know, like, for example, I'm married to one of the great teachers in Israel, an author, editor, and, you know, I mean, she's way more scholar than me, than me by a long shot. But here I am, Rabbi Yomtu, Rabbi Yomtu. Well, she's like, I mean, you have to like, I don't know what it takes to convince her to stand up in front of people and talk. And it's not because she's shy. She is not shy. She just, she just doesn't have any interest or need whatsoever to assert herself in this world. She is perfectly happy to just author books and have people read them. And she wants her Torah in the world, but she doesn't. She didn't care that it would be even her that, that presents it. I mean, she would almost change the name of the author on the book. That's about how she is. She would, uh, she would almost not even author it with her own name because she has zero interest in asserting herself here. 
Whereas men are more likely to be genuinely upset about the fact that no one's going to remember who we are a hundred years from now. Like, for example, does anyone here know anyone that their of their ancestors from a hundred years ago? hundred years ago is, you know, like 18, uh, 1918. Yeah, you know something? What do you know? Um, I mean, I know where they came from. I know no, I meant them, like something about them. Names, know, uh, yeah, what they were into. Yeah, I don't know. Ben, not Ben. Tell us. Um, You're probably the only one here. Anyone else got uh, information on a hundred years ago? He's got. Um, <laughs> she wants I, to know. I've talked to my grandparents about like what they know about their ancestry, and I've like looked. At, I've done some research into like different documents, like Yudvashem and stuff. And uh, now he was genuinely interested and got to find out stuff. What if you weren't interested? How much would you know? Zero. And this is our only guy who knew. <laughs> and I promise you that even earlier than 100 years ago, there were probably some amazing people that you're right. descended from. Amazing. Like, meaning people who, like, he was a household name in the town or something. Like, like everyone knew who that person was. It's shocking. And we're at 100 years. What happens at 200 years? 200 years is not a long time. And what are the chances any of us will be remembered 200 years from now? No matter what you do. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm doing a lot of, like, public stuff. And I'm pretty much convinced that my longevity will probably be, meaning after I pass away, I think people will have known of me. I would give it maybe another 25 years. And at 25 years later you wouldn't be able to find a single person who knew how I was. I mean, maybe my own family would have, my own family would vaguely, like I'd have grandkids who are like, grandkids were like, who? Yeah, there'd be name Yomtov. <laughs> I'd have great, you know, I'd have great or great, great grandkids named Yomtov and they'd just be like, yeah, so who was Yomtov? And they'd be like, some like totally off the ball of all tshuva and you know, like, you know, the most eclectic person and, you know, apparently we're descendant of him. You know. Did you choose your name? I did not choose my name. No. Kidding. Yom Tov. <laughs> so, I, I lied most of my life, like, what my name was. I was so embarrassed as a kid so growing up. Really? <laughs> no, I'm just saying, like, if, you know, if, like, my bar mitzvah, like, I, I, I wanted to be called, like, Yonatan or something. Anything but good day. So, um, <laughs> you think of this weird name. Um, I have met, by the way, I seem, I think when you have a weird name, you tend to meet people with your name. So I have a whole list of Yom Tubs that I met. And they're, each one of them is pretty cool, actually. They're, uh, I mean, they're pretty out there, guys. So I, apparently, even if you're raised observant and your name's Yom Tov, you're still pretty funky. No, yeah, the Yom Tov Club. <laughs> we all get together, just anyone named Yom Tov. You know, there's a guy in Bubov. There's a crazy guy in a Hasidic group called Bubov. Bubov is a large group, you know, thousands of Hasidim. You know what he did in Shul? This Shul has, you know, I don't know, maybe 5,000 people sit in Shul. He went around to every hardcore carrot top redhead and asked them to meet him in an obscure room after davening. Every single one of them, he went up to every single one of them. And they, apparently Bubba has some good redheads. So, so 
So it was about 40 redheads in amongst the 5,000 people. So all these redheads are davening, and they're like, okay, after davening, i got to meet so-and-so. Anyway, they all wound up in a room together, all 40 of them. <laughs> 40 redheads in a room together. And, and they're all just waiting, and after a while, they're looking at each other going like, huh? And then finally he walked in, and he's like, hey, everybody! You know, so... Okay. What? This is a crazy guy in Buffalo. Wait, that's the end of the story? Yep. Um, it's over. The story's over. Okay. Now, I'd like to tell you guys some interesting things about gender um, in regarding uh, Torah, and that is that we're all receivers. One thing you might not have, you might have missed is that there's often feminist there's often feminist Jews. Like, for example, the, like, the famous, infamous, sorry, women of the wall who like to wear tefillin and they like to wear tzitzis. Now, I don't know if they actually do this daily or only when they're on camera, but, but there, um, there are women like this, and they're generally not observant, and they are, um, but one thing they definitely don't know is Kabbalah, because if they knew any Kabbalah, they would know that the reason men wear all this stuff is because we're, it's not a good thing to be at war with God. Men have issues with God, and we have, we have to like tie ourselves down to subjugate ourselves before God. This is not good news. For example, in the morning, when it's time for prayer on Saturday morning, Shabbos morning, I have five daughters, three boys. My, when I come out, my daughters are praying all over the house. Like every corner seems to be occupied by a girl praying. Whereas you can come back hours later and you can't get my boys out of bed with a crowbar. Meaning prayer is emasculating. Think about the word prayer. Prayer, think about the subject of prayer. It's, it's to spend a period of time, and sometimes a long period of time, recognizing you're not the boss. Recognizing you're not the source. Recognizing that there's something that is way beyond you and that you are totally subject to it. Well, men don't like that. Men don't like that at all. Because we are born to get out there and go. You know, we're born to go, like, make it happen and be the guy who everyone remembers, even though we've just established that no one will remember us. And uh, someone remind me, we, we feed a family. This class feeds a family. The guy just gave me the sign. Remind me after. And um, anyway, so, so I wanted to do an experiment. Oh, so I was just going to say is that, is that it's important to note that, uh, that it's not a good thing that a girl should be wearing sitsis. If she really thinks she needs sitsis, by the way, I've met a couple of girls over the years that I think should be in sitsis personally, meaning they become men. Not literally, meaning they're, they're, just, they're just doing the Jewish feminist thing. And so they're not observant, you know, Jewish feminists, you know, and they... You know, meaning, meaning they've almost earned the fact that they're so far from God with this whole thing that they should be wearing sitsis because they've, there's, did I say so far from God? Sorry, so far from female. Let me correct that. So far from the female relationship with God that maybe sitsis is a good idea, but it's not a compliment. You understand? That's no compliment. For a woman wearing sitsis, she is not, that is not a compliment for her. That's saying, like, she has lost her way and now needs sitsis. Whereas men, we, we're born self-admitting that we've lost our way. And men have just lost their way entirely. And therefore, 
we have an 100%, like, no exceptions made, commandment of tzitzis for every man over the age of 13. And we have an unex, no exceptions for tefillin. You got us, every man. Oh, so you're a more feminine man, maybe, because Ben could give an ar argument that maybe, well, I've really developed my feminine side, Rabbi Glazer. And so I don't think I need tzitzis or tefillin. Like, I, me, God and I, we're good. So we don't, we don't differentiate that kind of stuff. And not to mention, it is a mitzvah, so you do get the mitzvah. You, you do get that mitzvah, and maybe that's why the feminists want to wear it, because they're like, how come men get the mitzvah and we don't? So I'm saying, no, it's a handicap that you get, need it, but you also at least get the chance, you get to make a bracha on it, there will be reward for it. And a woman said, well, I want to do that. Well, we believe in reincarnation. And I heard from one great Rebbe that every woman was once a man. Meaning, we've all been both genders throughout. Somehow I'm supposed to be a man this time, and it's probably other times I've been a woman, but he said, but for sure every woman's already done the whole man thing. That's why they're so chill. While us men get all uppity about stupid stuff when it comes to honor and, and like, you know, the, what is honor? Honor means you, you're gonna last. You're, you're, you're built to last here. That's the honor men look for. Women don't look for honor like that. Speaking of which, you know, there it is. Perfect timing. There's the honor. And of course, leave it to Israel to be the most progressive in the world and put women in the army, you know, which, is, which makes our society nuts. And why do you think Israeli society is so nuts? Well, there's many reasons. But one of the big ones is that we don't have regular population. What's regular population is your first two children are experiments and they're generally nuts. But then you have like another four, five, six kids because we're not into birth control. Birth control is a new kid on the block. So you have all these kids. Now, the first kid, your parent, like you always dreamt you'd parent and you realize later that humans don't work in systems very well. And so you blew it with the first kid. Second kid, you do everything the opposite you did with the first kid and you see, well, that doesn't work either. And by the third kid, you actually start parenting. So you have two experiments and four or five children. So the four, five, six, seven, eight, nine children populate the world, while the two hopefully, like, you know, stay out of trouble. Now, the, but what happens in a society that only has 1.2 kid, you should see the .2 kid, the, um, the, they only have 1.2 kid, is that you're only giving birth to experiments. Now, somehow, society, I don't know how they work this out, but they knew that, you that the man's going to be the warrior and go out there and get all emotionally and spiritually trashed out there. While the woman's going to maintain an environment of all that is good. She's going to retain a, an environment that all that is good, and the children will be raised in all that is good, and the male children will have to go out and face the dragons of all that is not good and deal with that, but at least they're coming from all that is good. But if you put your 1.2 kids also in the army and see all that is not good, so now you have an entire population being raised where children are being raised by two people who are not protecting any type of a, kind of a Garden of Eden for those children, that you can grow up with all that is good. So, so hence, you, know, you wind up with a crazy population, you know, and, and all kinds of shenanigans take place, which are happening right now in the academic world and the young and the, and the, in America. So, uh, one sec, one sec, that was all digressive to, um, 
to just the last thing I want to say is just I did this amazing experiment is I took a Hasidic group with 800 men in it and I searched for the most feminine men because we also have both genders in us just like the flowers we were talking about you know the flowers we have established have male and female <laughs> plants we could talk about later but the uh, but at least the flowers have both and the uh, so also human beings have both we all have both and you can actually even develop part of your part of your feminine energy. I hope us men with all our prayers and all our tzitzis and all our tefillin, I hope our feminine energy is developing. And I think it is. I think we do develop that. But the, um, but the, uh, what was I saying about, oh, I, had, I did an experiment. I did the experiment. It was hardly very scientific. But what I did was I scanned my, my synagogue that has 800 men, all of who were arranged marriages. This is in Meisharim. All of who have arranged marriages, they've all been married since they're basically 18 years old. They all have large families, so they're highly active, let's just say, without anything explicit. Um, but they have very large families. Uh, the average family in our community is 10 kids per family. So it's, it's, these people are, you know, they've gotten to know each other, the couple. And, um, and they're, but what's interesting about them is I searched for the females. Who are the men who are the total femmes in the, in the synagogue? And I found them. I found three men who are absolutely 100% as feminine as a human male could get. Like, they, I, they would have for sure have been transgender if they were growing up in, uh, you know, I don't want to, Berkeley, I don't know. So, so I discovered these men. And then my question was, well, what becomes of them? Who are they in the synagogue? Well, I was shocked to find out that all three men were our emergency prayer leaders. That when we're in an emergency, like Tehillim for someone dying, wartime, uh, we have set emergencies, like, for example, uh, the prayer for rain, um, set emergencies of the prayer for um, uh, Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, like uh, Ni'ilan Yom Kippur, you know, real emergency situations. Every time it's an emergency, they lead the prayers. They're the actual prayer leaders. Well, it's very interesting that the females who have stood up in, this, in the reform movement, the females who have stood up in the reform movement to be the leaders, who have become the rabbis, the cantors, the presidents of the synagogues, and all that. So you should know that even though I spoke, maybe you would think I spoke disparagingly about them. Well, I do think they're confused, but, but I got to hand it to them because while, the, while secular men, meaning reformed conservative men, are trying to like surgically reinstall their foreskins, the, their female counterparts have said, have said, we're not going to let Judaism die. So if they, you won't be rabbis, we'll be rabbis. And if you won't be cantors, we'll be cantors. If you won't read the Torah, we'll read the Torah. If you won't be the president of a synagogue and keep this place going, we'll do it. And, and so it's really, if anything, the feminist movement of, of Judaism that's going on right now, if anything, is just a better sign of, of perhaps the loss of the Jewish male in, uh, in Western society. Shalom. Everyone will see you in two weeks. Please pass around a cup for the family who needs to make shot. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.